Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Tonight, we're going to start a, a four-part series, which is looking at the Nevi'im, the prophets. And the way that's going to work is tonight, I'm going to talk about the prophet Yeshayahu. And next week, we'll talk about Yirmiyahu. And the week after that, we'll talk about Yechezkel, Ezekiel. And then the week after that, we'll try in one session to deal with all the 12 prophets that are known as the minor. There's nothing minor about them, but the Treasar and each of those individually. Who would regard themselves as familiar broadly with the historical context of the prophet Isaiah when he's living and what he's doing and what he wants and what he's responding to. Okay, so that's really what we want to focus on to begin with tonight because it's impossible to understand anything in Tanakh unless you understand its historical context and understand what the prophet is talking about in relation to his society and his world and what the challenges are. And the amazing thing about doing that is when we do do that, not only does it bring the text completely to life and make sense of it, but we start to find tremendous relevance for ourselves on a whole different level that we didn't even realise was the case. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about prophets. Now, uh, the Jewish nation, as you know, is, very, is a very unique nation. And there are some aspects of the Jewish nation that are unique, but they share those features with other nations. We regard our priesthood, for example, as very unique, but other nations have priests. We regard our kings as very special, but other nations have kings. However, there is one institution that flows through the whole of Jewish history, or certainly did up through the first temple period, and will one day be restored, which is a very, very key, important factor in the whole of the Jewish continuum, and that is the, the concept of nevoah, the concept of prophecy. The prophets of Israel and the prophets of the people of Israel are not like any other type of visionary or seer or oracle that belongs to any other people. They are a very, very unique species, the prophets of Israel. And during the time of the first temple, which is the time that we're looking at, is when they really came to the fore to relate to the challenges of their own time, but their messages are eternal. And when we, so when we look at the book of Isaiah, we're looking at something that was written 2,700 years ago, but the way it can speak to us today is remarkable. So that's the first thing, the importance of Nevi'im. And Nevi'im had messenger, two types of messages. Well, two broad audiences. On the one hand, they were speaking to the Jewish people themselves. And those types of messages could be one of two types. They could be castigating messages, or they could be comforting messages, or inspirational messages. And the other audience they had were the nations of the world. And in order to become a credible oracle and seer and inspiration to the nations of the world, you have to establish a set of fundamental principles that give validity to your message. And that validity relies in your conception of God. 
So the first thing we need to realize when we're looking at the Nevi'im, especially starting with Isaiah and that whole period that goes, and I'll show you exactly where we're sitting, it's about a two, three hundred year period where the Nevi'im effectively transform our concept of God in order that we as a nation can be transformed into a historical and spiritual continuum that can go on to the next phases of history. Because we're looking at a very, very transitional time in history that the Nevi'im come to the fore. When is that? So let's look at it exactly. That's a timeline. We're here, approximately in the year 2000. Yeah? I'm going to call this minus 2000. And we'll call this a zero. I'm using the secular counting that everybody in the world uses. We'll use that, but it's very convenient because we have a span of 4,000 years. This is 1,000. This is minus 1,000. Minus 500. 500. 1,500. Minus 1,500. All right. The last 4,000 years divided up into 500-year chunks. But this period here, from around minus 1,000 to minus 500, is a discrete, unique period in Jewish history known as Bayit. What's the meaning of the word Bayit? House, very good. Rishon, the first house or the first temple. They didn't refer to the temple in Jerusalem as the temple. They called it the house of God. This is the first house. It effectively is the first temple that was in Jerusalem that stood roughly within the, you know, including its building, its duration, its destruction, all of that happened in that 500-year period that we call the First Temple period. Everybody follow so far? Now, I'm going to rub this and we're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom in on that period. So I'm going to call this minus 1,000 and I'm going to call this minus 500. 600, minus 700. Minus 800, minus 900. I know the centuries should be equal, but there you go. All right. Where we're now going to zoom our lens is right here, in this period here, which we might call the second half of the 8th century BCE. Like roundabout from minus 750 to roundabout minus 700. That's a period that, for this talk, is really going to start interesting us. Because the first thing we need to look at is what is our picture of the world historically? What is happening? This is the period in which the prophet Isaiah is active, the prophet Yeshayahu. So you can see that he's pretty much smack in the middle of this period. He's deep into the first temple. There's still about 150 years to go to the end of the first temple. Because, but, but this is the period where he is. And what does our world look like? Well, some of you will be familiar with this. So you've seen me do this a million times. Don't call out, but do you know what this is? Rabbi Goodhart, any idea what is that? It's, it's the Mediterranean. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, go there. Right? For those of you who are confused, that's the water. All right? But what this enables us to do is kind of build our picture here. So that's Spain right? And uh, that's Italy, that's Greece, that's Turkey, there's Egypt, here's North Africa, right? And here, here is the land of Israel, all right? Now at this point, the land of Israel 
if we're zooming in on the 8th century, the land of Israel is occupied by the Jewish people primarily, but we have a, by the 12 tribes of Israel, but we have a divided kingdom. What I mean by a divided kingdom is there are two kingdoms operating in tandem. For most of the history of the first temple, that is the case. It has to do with these, this idea of two kingdoms. There is a northern kingdom comprising 10 of the tribes called the kingdom of Israel. And then there is a southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah, which is primarily two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and has the capital of Jerusalem. This is the dual kingdom system that existed throughout most of the first temple. Sometimes these kingdoms were at peace and cooperating, at other times they were at war with each other, and at other times it was somewhere in between. But there was a parallel that was going on. Obviously, as is famously known, the southern kingdom tended to be much more politically stable because it had the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem. So you basically knew the family and the identity of the next king. Whereas in the Northern Kingdom, it was much more down to violent assassination uh, and generally even some of the stronger families would only be able to hold on to the kingship for maybe three or four generations before once again there was an upheaval. But there's basically two systems. Now in the middle of the 8th century, this is the picture politically, is that we have just seen in both kingdoms about a half a century of a very stable situation. A stable rule, a very stable kingdom, a powerful king in the north, the king of the kingdom of Israel for most of this period enjoyed prosperity, stability and military conquests and his name was Jeroboam II, Yeroboam Hasheni. In the southern kingdom, also for around half a century, a very powerful king of Judah, of Yehuda, who is the first king really that is a focus of our interest, and that is the king Uzziah. And Uzziah ends up reigning for about 50 years, also economically stable, maybe not doing as well as the northern kingdom, which was much more into its commercial prosperity, but nevertheless, it was not a bad time. Around the land of Israel are dotted various other kingdoms. There's a little bit of a power vacuum in the area for the last century or so, and so some of these kingdoms are actually able to, together, establish a stable Middle East. I know those two words don't always go together, but, and, and they haven't for millennia, but during the 8th century, there was a stable Middle East, more or less, comprised of you had Tyre up here, and you had Aram, and you had Ammon, and Moab, and Edom. These are kingdoms that were surrounding Israel and Judah. The nearest kind of thing that would even look like a kind of a power, bigger than that, would be Egypt. But for most of this time, the 24th, 25th and 26th dynasties of the Middle Pharaonic period are minding their own business, more or less. And to raise a conquest of all these guys was probably beyond even Egypt during the 8th and 9th centuries. There wasn't a lot of interest because at the end of the day, even if Egypt did conquer them, they'd only be conquering their own trade routes. And frankly, that's what many of these smaller kingdoms were servicing and, and also were a very key component in the very important 
you see, it's amazing. It's amazing. Right? You know what the big industry coming out of this area was, right, this whole region? Was oil. But not oil as we know oil. It was olive oil. Olives were like the, they were, not like, they were the oil. You know, so the, the olive trade is a very, very important foundation of much of the economic prosperity and industry of this entire region. It wasn't the only thing. And of course, during the 9th and the 8th centuries, none of these entities which were evolving this stable situation could see. I mean, they saw it. They, by, by here they started seeing it, but they hadn't been seeing for a few decades the massive looming tsunami that was just around the corner. When I say tsunami, I do not mean physical tsunami. Don't get confused. I'm using that metaphorically. There was an enormous force that was gathering speed just outside this region that is about to overtake it. The only metaphor really appropriate for that, which Ishayao himself uses, is that of a giant wave that is going to rise up. And that, of course, is just off the board. And that is here, the whole kingdom of Assyria. Assyria is coming. And we're going to obviously look at that in a moment, but I just wanted to pick up the picture as we probably would have it round about 750. One of the things we need to understand when we look at this picture in a bit more detail, the picture of what's going on in the kingdom of Judah and in the kingdom of Israel, and what's going on specifically in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the political capital of the kingdom of Judah, but the spiritual capital of the whole place, ideally. You know, sometimes there's a way in which we can understand the difference between Israel and Judah. I kid you not. It's amazing how these ideas get transformed into much, much later periods of history. But, you know, there are people that have this idea. There are people even today who say, well, what we need to do is we need to make Yehuda and Shomron its own separate state, run according to Halakha, a religious Zionist state that understands what it's doing and just let the rest of those secular archiparchim go. And I've heard exactly the same argument in Tel Aviv by saying we don't need all those loons running around in Jerusalem and the West Bank. Let them go and we'll just create a nice dirty Jewish secular state right here in Tel Aviv and the Gush Dan. And that's it. So the differences kind of culturally between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv on a much bigger scale, you can imagine a kind of transmogrified into this picture. The northern kingdom of the ten tribes was the closest, the closest thing to what the ancient world could probably deliver to secularism. It's not secularism as we know it, but it, you know, polytheism was kind of encouraged. Yes, there's a main God, there's a main religion, but if you've got another idea, come along and start it, and as long as it makes money, it'll be fine. <laughs> and the southern kingdom tended to be a lot frumer. They were actually, you know, they had the temple, and therefore there was a far less inclination there. Uh, remember that only a century before, we'd had some pretty horrific wars fought, especially in the Northern Kingdom. Very, very violent, bloody religious wars that had been fought in the Northern Kingdom, both for and against 
the new syncretisms, the Baalist syncretisms that were seeping in. Religion was still, and ideology was still playing very, very much a part then as it does now. So, but within Jerusalem itself, and within the temple framework itself, there is a tension between, on the one hand, the institution of the kingship, and on the other hand, that of the priesthood. Now, these are big topics. People have written enormously on these topics. I'm only touching on them. Everything I say tonight is like a doorway into another topic. But there are fault lines, social and political fault lines, that run right through the first temple period that scholars are now very aware of. And you can see that those fault lines sometimes crack at certain important junctures. And one of those junctures happens in the reign of King Uzziah. And King Uzziah, this is where it's recorded in, in Sefer Malachim, King Uzziah comes into the temple one day. Everybody know what I'm about to talk about? King Uzziah comes into the temple with a whole bunch of soldiers and he says, today I'm going to be offering the incense on the altar. And the priests turn to him and they say, uh, we think not. That particular task is given to the house of Aaron. Only priests are allowed to offer incense on the altar. He says, well, I'm the king and that's what I'm going to do. And the priest says, well, there's, you know, quite a few priests here in the temple. You know, there's at least uh, a few hundred priests around who will say otherwise. And there is a very, very tense standoff in the temple. And Uzziah turns around and picks up the incense and prepares it and starts walking towards the altar when boom, there is an earthquake. Now this earthquake, the Tanakh doesn't mention the earthquake. We have the earthquake from several later sources that can be pinpointed to around this time. Josephus, when he recalls this, says there was an earthquake. The Talmud says there was an earthquake. And seismologists today who study the Middle East know that at some point here there was an earthquake. But whether there was an earthquake or not, there's suddenly an aperture in the building and the sunlight pours in. This is the Tanakh. The sunlight pours in onto Uzziah's face and he turns around and everybody goes, <gasps> because he is suddenly struck with leprosy. What that then means is that he has to be immediately shuttled out of the temple precinct. You can't even be within the city if you've got leprosy, let alone in the temple itself. And he has to be sitting outside. He spends the next decade or so living outside the walls as the king, while his son, we'll put these, we'll, we'll, we'll put these this is Uzziah, and his son, Yotam, comes to the throne as a co-regent. So his father, the king, is still living outside the walls. Amazingly, that's not the only time we have a leper king in Jerusalem living outside the walls. Anyone know the other one? Yes, it's in the Crusades. One of the kings, Stephen, one of the kings actually had leprosy, was living outside the city. So it's kind of the way these things evolve. It's very interesting. But, so your tum is on the throne and Uzziah. Now, Uzziah dies... And in the year that he dies, a young man who is a cousin of the king, so he's like a first cousin, I think, of Uzziah, and a second cousin of Yotam. He's kind of used to being around the royal courts, but he has not particularly made a name for himself yet. But he has been 
fairly preoccupied with some of the major themes, political themes and social themes. He has become a bit of a social activist and of course to take on that role in those days is pretty much not that dissimilar and we'll look at this more in depth next week when we look at Jeremiah but not that dissimilar to what it would be like to stand up in most shuls today and announce that you're a leftist. He um, wanders around but suddenly because the real beginning of the book of Yeshayahu, and I'm hoping that this talk is not a substitute for reading the book and I'm hoping that you will all read that text because the real beginning is in chapter 6. The beginning of chapter 6. Bishnat Mot HaMelech Uziyahu in the year of the death of King Uziyahu Va'ere'et Adonai I saw God sitting in the temple Veshulav Meleim Etaechal and it was like his glory and his things were filling the entire space and chapter 6 of the book of Yeshayahu is the book where we talk about the election or the selection of the Navi. Unlike other Nuviim who are tortured souls and go, oh, not me, no, I couldn't do it, couldn't possibly think about that role, whatever. Or even like Yonah who ran away, like Yirmiyahu who definitely did not want to be a prophet. Yeshayahu responds to the call of who are we going to send to tell this people what they need to be told and Yeshayahu puts his hand up and says that's me he was not someone who was intimidated or afraid of taking on a position where he would be the voice of God to a nation that was going to have a very very difficult time hearing what he had to say because this is what he had to say to the generation of Uziah and Yotam who <laughs> were going down the same road that the northern kingdom had gone down which was a road where prosperity had evolved to social injustice and the really, really big thing that was happening was that all of the things that the Torah warns about when it talks about how if you're going to build a society it has to be on a foundation of social justice, particularly the gap between rich and poor, particularly those institutions in society that were supposed to allow access to people to the resources of the society and most particularly the law. It wasn't just a case necessarily that the law was being applied corruptly, but institutionally, people could not get access to it. You had to be wealthy in order to be able to have the law protect the justice of your situation. Everybody follow what I'm saying? The widows, the orphans, the disadvantaged couldn't even get anywhere near the courts because they didn't have the means for access to the legal situation. The legal structure was simply a reflection of the inequalities built into the economy of the society. This is very, very clear, not only when you read the Book of Kings, but you read all the Nevi'im, this was their major, major concern of social justice. 
And the first five chapters of the book of Yeshayo, in other words, what are those first five chapters doing there if his career really starts in chapter 6? Is because, and I'll here to tell you, that the first five prakim, the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah are the ultimate microcosm of everything that's going on in that text, in the book. Because the first chapter, in which we're not sure if he delivered that before he had his big vision of God, or whether he had it after his vision of God, and they're just there at the beginning because they're so important. But the message is very, very stark and very, very clear. Your sons are assholes, and your daughters are sluts. Don't look at me, don't blame me, read the book of Isaiah, that's what he's telling you. He's saying your society is going kaput because you have entirely the wrong conception of God. God doesn't want sacrifices, God doesn't want rituals, God doesn't want frumkai, he doesn't want you to be frum. What God wants is tzedek, he wants righteousness, or mishpat, he wants justice. Those are the things that are primarily your concern as the people of Judah and the people of Israel and the Jewish people in the land of Israel. We're going to see this big time next week again with the, with the book of Yirmiyahu in an entirely different geopolitical framework. But here, this message is startling. In a single blow, Yeshayahu universalizes the concept of God. It is not the case that, you know, our God is more powerful than other gods. There is only one God. That's the cornerstone of monotheism. Whatever you call God, there is only one force that is guiding the universe. And that force, that God requires an ethical and moral relationship from you with your fellow human beings in order to reflect the presence of God because God is a universal God and there can be no other demand from a universal God other than one that is ethical and righteous and just. And it doesn't matter how many prayers you say, it doesn't matter how many sacrifices you bring, they will count for nothing unless you have a society that is based on justice and righteousness. It's a message that is very difficult to hear when you are in a society that has been doing these rituals and these sacrifices and that society is doing okay. We're not under threat, we're prosperous, we're wealthy. Well, most people, a lot of, some people are wealthy. And that's just in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, Yeshayahu gives you the other side of the Yeshayahu coin. In chapter 2, Suddenly, Yeshayahu is giving you a vision of how it's meant to be. Of how it's meant to be. I have to tell you that when you look at the book of Yeshayahu, when you read any of the Nevi'im, you are reminded of something very, very important about us. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The Jewish people are not a cultural club. We do not survive from generation to generation as people who set up halls or shuls or whatever it is we do. We do not survive history to pass down the recipe for gefilte fish. 
We are a nation with a purpose. And that purpose, which you've all heard this term, but it comes from Yeshayahu. That purpose is to be Orda Goyim. That purpose is to be a light for the nations. That purpose is to be the presence of God in the world. When we are not doing that, we are not fulfilling. It's not just the case that, oh, well, you know, I'm meant to be like this, but I'm not. The whole of the Jewish people, the whole question of their existence and their continuum is brought into question. That is the challenge of the Nevi'im and especially of Yeshayahu to bring that consciousness to the people of Israel. You're not just another king. You're not just another priest. You're not just another political entity. You're not just another country in a nation on a land. You have a purpose. That purpose has to do with God. That purpose has to do with the God of the universe. It is a universal purpose. It affects all the nations. It affects all the world. I know that I'm saying things now that we take for granted, but Yeshayahu affects his consciousness. So in chapters like chapter 2 and chapter 11 and basically everything from chapter 40 onwards, and where most to say the Haftarot are taken from, Yeshayahu is giving us this vision of what the world is supposed to look like. And I'll tell you what the world is supposed to look like according to the book of Isaiah, and you don't have to take my interpretation, it's not an interpretation, I'm telling you what he says. <laughs> Because it's very easy for us now to understand it. It's not just the case that the Jewish people will be seen as a spiritual dogma, not just that they will be seen spiritually as an example for the whole world, but that politically, geopolitically, Israel will be the center that all the nations of the world will consult. The United Nations, as we understand it now, will be in Jerusalem. Nations will stream towards it to seek advice. Yeshayahu tells you, will, Yushalayim will be the house of peace for the whole world and the house of wisdom and the Jewish people will be the light for the nations and the presence of God will be established. That messianic picture was new at that time. People weren't running around then like they are now going, oh, when's Mashiach coming? That picture is the picture that, and how do we arrive at that picture? Because Yeshayahu, like the Nevi'im, I'm, I'm jumping themes, I'm going to come back to the historical in a moment because we haven't really touched, gone into depth, but they're all intertwined. How do we arrive at that messianic picture? We'll hold that thought, I want to come back in to here. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Your tum is on the throne. And sure, you know, guys like Isaiah, and also we've had prophets in the northern kingdom. The two big prophets that have already happened in the northern kingdom are the prophets Hosea and the prophet Amos. And they have warned about the terrible destruction that's going to happen to the northern kingdom. Even Amos, who was actually from Yehuda, went to the northern kingdom to tell them, your game is up. There is already a political power struggle happening in the land of Israel and in the kingdom of Yehuda in relation to Assyria. All the trouble was going to come from Assyria. Amazingly. Amazingly. Because, <laughs> just look at today. You know, that whole Syria, Iraq juncture that's exactly where all of this stuff was coming from but 
in a mass, not like, not like ISIS today, who are only their kindergarten. This was the first of the major, major, unstoppable, globally expanding empires that we are going to see for the next millennium. This was the first, the Neo-Assyrians. They weren't the first Assyrians. Assyrians had had several modes of expansion at different times over the preceding 1,500 years, but this one was their biggest. And we call it the Neo-Assyrian Empire because they revived Assyrian culture, they revived their military, they went on massive conquests, and they were unstoppable. The name of their empire was Ashur. The name of their major city was Ashur. The name of their god was Ashur. They had a nation-state theology that was, they were carrying with them wherever they went. And they were becoming a tremendous threat, but they had not yet taken this part of the Middle East. This was a shtickle too close to, to Egypt for them, and also they needed all the full resources to be able to deal with this not confederated entity, but a certain stable situation that existed with all these buffer kings around Israel and Judah. But already there was political pressure being exerted within the house of Judah so that we had two major political factions, one of which was the pro-Assyrian, one of which was the anti-Assyrian factions. And the pro-Assyrian faction deposed Yotam and put on the throne his son, Ahaz. And Ahaz was a very different king. Your tongue, by the way, your tongue, your tongue. Only dude to have been co-regent twice in his life. Once with his father, when his father had leprosy, and once with his son, when he was deposed and his son was put on the throne by the pro-Assyrian factions. Because the pro-Assyrian factions wanted Judah to make a deal with Assyria. Your tongue is referred to by the Tanakh very, very rarely uh, does the Tanakh actually say any of the kings were any good. It calls Yotam a righteous king. Much, much later Jewish literature, such as the Zohar and so on, make of Yotam a, a mystical figure because there's very, very little written about him as a person and personality other than we know that he basically didn't do anything wrong. And that, for a king of Judah and Israel right throughout the first temple period, is extremely rare. But Ahaz was a very different king. And Ahaz was on the throne and started playing this geopolitical maneuvers. And he's very worried because the kings around him of Aram and Israel wanted to make an alliance against the Assyrians. So when the Assyrians, remember, now Assyria worked like this. The king, the emperor of Assyria, every year, you know, early summer, late spring, early summer, would have to take the army out and conquer someplace. So the, the, there was kind of this built-in mechanism that the Assyrian Empire would constantly expand. If he went for a couple of years and hadn't conquered anything new, they would call him a leftist. <laughs> he had to keep expanding, so they knew it was only a matter of time before Assyria would begin to overwhelm this area, and Aram makes a deal with Israel. And they, but because Ahaz doesn't want a part of that alliance... He's threatened with invasion by them. They're going to invade. Aram and Israel are going to invade Judah because Judah won't align with them against Assyria. Follow? And that's the point of the famous chapter 7. Don't worry, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. I'm not going to be going through them at the pace I'm going through these. But these are the important... By the way, just before I come back to this, 
about what Achaz is going to do about these two nearby kings that want to invade him because he won't join with them against Assyria. I just want to say, because I'm reminded of this, and I don't say it now, I'll regret it. Two things about the book of Yeshayahu that I want you to understand. It's got 66 chapters. The first, but it's, it's pretty clearly divided into two types of books. One is chapters 1 to 39, which deal with all the material we're talk we've talked about till now. And the other is 40 to 66, which deals with an entirely different set of themes that I obviously will be talking about in a short while that have led many scholars to possibly believe it was written by a different person than the first prophet Yeshayahu. That view, you don't have to be a Chazafressing Apikurus to have that view. That view was held by eminent Rishonim such as Eben Ezra and so on and other scholars. We may have actually two different prophets dealing with here, but there are many views that also look at the unity of the book and say that, no, the person who wrote the first chapters is also the person who wrote the last chapters. For whatever the source of all that discussion is, we know that our entire picture of the book of Isaiah has not changed for the last 2,000 years because the book of Yeshayahu, a complete version of which is entirely, or virtually entirely, exactly the same as the one we have now, was found in Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we know that certainly for the last 2,000 years, it has been the one book. The second thing I want to say is this, and I'll come closer because it's a bit controversial, <laughs> and, and you won't like me. No, you won't like me, but you'll, I'll freak you out. The thing is this, don't panic when I say this, all right? Because sometimes when you say this to audiences, they kind of, you know, they sphincters clench and they go, oh my gosh, or they run out of the room or they, go, they switch off or whatever. You've got to read the book in Hebrew. <laughs> David Ben-Gurion said once that reading the book of Yeshayahu in any other language other than the original is like kissing a beautiful woman through a handkerchief. And that might actually work for some people, but the, re <laughs> the, re the reality is that... Hebrew is the language of the Jewish soul. It is what affords you the most intimate experience with our history and our continuum. It's stunning in English. It's stunning in English. I'm not saying that you won't get anything out of it when you read it in English. It's amazing, especially if you're reading with a good translation. But in Hebrew, it's indescribable. The book of Yeshayahu is not just, ah, oh, we have this Navi called Yeshayahu, he's written a nice book, isn't that lovely? It is one of the greatest monuments of world spiritual and religious literature and poetry. It is phenomenal. And when you look at it in the Hebrew, it's kind of, wow. Now, therefore, I hear what you say. You say, well, I appreciate that. That's very nice. And, you know... Maybe my children or my grandchildren at a Jewish school, they might explain it to me one day, but I'm not going to be that person who's going to sit down and read it in Hebrew. I'm just not that person. Wrong. You don't have to become a professor of Hebrew language overnight. But that journey begins when you open the book and you just start reading. Every word you learn will open your mind to a new window of understanding. And as I'm often saying... You know, there are two-year-olds running around Israel speaking Hebrew. How difficult can it be? 
But the reality is I have to say that because it affords you a much more intimate experience, even if it's slow at first. Try and read the book of Yeshayahu at some point in the original and you'll see that every word has kind of got this amazing aura of quality about it. So, so aren't there also 50-year-olds running around Israel speaking Hebrew who would not understand the Tanakh if they were to read it? I don't agree with that. Do you think? I think it's definitely a different level of Hebrew, a different a different t- type of Hebrew, but one of the amazing things about modern Hebrew is that we didn't, when uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda revived the language, he didn't revive, he didn't make it up. It is the same language. It's much closer, modern Hebrew is much closer to the Tanakh than, you know, Spanish is to Latin or modern English to Shakespeare. Oh, well, maybe it's closer to modern, certainly closer than modern English to Chaucer and maybe, maybe similar to Shakespeare, but there's no, but once again, you know, we all learned Shakespeare at high school, I mean, we can do it. So, I, I'm actually taking that point, and I'm saying no, if you have modern Hebrew, what stops people is the will. And just to sit down and say, and, and especially in countries outside of Israel, especially like Australia, Australia freaks out at the concept of bilinguality, Australia, all Australians do, many, many do. And they go, oh, yeah, but I'm not that person. You know, I can't see myself on the other side of that exercise of being the sort of person who would actually be able to pick up a Hebrew book and understand it. Like, that, you know, like... So we need to break through that consciousness and actually develop and understand that we all can do that. Yeshayahu is told to go and meet Ahaz and tell him basically to do nothing. Don't make geopolitical alliances, rely on the God of Israel. And in fact, because those two kings are going to be nothing in a very short space of time, there's an entire kind of philosophy of political neutrality that emerges out of what Yeshayahu is saying to Ahaz. But Ahaz treats that advice with contempt and makes a, does something. He actually makes a deal with Assyria. He sends them quite a bit of treasure and stuff, and they end up leaving him alone. What we see, look, the Assyrians were no archiparchim. When you look at someone like Tiglat Pileser, and Tiglat Pileser is, you know, we can say, oh, he's a figure from history, an emperor of Assyria in the 8th century. One of the major, major conquerors and military commanders of history was Tiglat Pileser. The expansion of the Assyrian Empire was about to become unstoppable. And in fact, in the very fateful year of minus 720, not under Tigapleser, but his successor Shalmaneser and then Sargon, the Assyrians came in 720, and as foretold by the prophets, as foretold by the Nevi'im, especially by Amos, they came and they wiped out the whole of the northern kingdom. Gone. Finished. The ten tribes, away. Never to be seen again. When we talk about the lost ten tribes, that's when it happened. And ladies and gentlemen, these are not cartoons from the comic books. This is not something that you say, oh, well, the Bible says that. This is, Tanakh says that, but Tanakh is not the Book of Mormon. 
The Tanakh here is telling you how it was and everything it tells you is objective fact which we have corroborated by the massive Assyrian chronicles that we have. Many tens of thousands of cuneiform tablets that were only uncovered in the 19th century CE by British, French and German archaeologists who are reading stuff that is confirming everything the Bible is telling us that could not have been described except by people living at this time. And they confirm what we know. And they confirm what the Tanakh says. The Assyrians came and they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and they took the ten tribes away. And they ethnically cleansed the entire area and replanted it with their own various populations. That's what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians weren't nice conquerors. They weren't, you know, like the British. <laughs> well, you know, they didn't play cricket and they didn't say, like, you know, uh, uh, it's okay if you just, you know, raise a flag every morning and sing our national anthem and, you know, pay taxes a bit and then we'll leave you alone. They weren't like that. If you knew you'd been conquered by Assyria because you would find yourself either dead or enslaved or living in a place very, very far from where you were a month ago. That's the Assyrians. They didn't, they conquered, they conquered. The, the, the shift happened later with the Persians is really that shift where we're going to see, that's in the second temple period where we see a different type of imperial rule. Meanwhile, Ahaz is succeeded by his son. Ahaz dies. And all of these events, in other words, the treaty that Ahaz had made with the Assyrians staved off the Assyrians from Judah for a while, as predicted by Yeshayahu, because the, tri the, the kingdom of Yehudah had not reached the levels of degradation and corruption that were going to cause its destruction as prophesied by the prophets here. Yehudah still had some way to go and could still eventually save itself from that inevitability. Ahaz is succeeded by and all of these are part of the duration of the career of Yeshayahu. He is succeeded by, well, this dude is someone you've heard of. Because he is one of the biggest kings in the whole of the Second Temple period. He's one of only three or four really, really impressive, righteous kings. In fact, he was so great that much, much later in the Talmud, there were opinions that he was the Mashiach. He was huge, but a very complex figure. Sorry? David. Oh, no, no. David is back here because David... Yeah, such a no, no, I know. No, no. After David, he's probably the most important Davidic king after David. But David starts the Davidic kingdom, so he's got to be back here. No, the person I'm talking about you've heard of, that is, I'll write his name in English, Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah has witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom and he knows the Assyrians but he's conflicted because he also wants to listen to the prophets and he wants to do the right thing so he doesn't make deals he doesn't make deals with Assyria he doesn't really make deals with Egypt although he's toying with various possibilities it's almost like Ishayahu is coming to him occasionally going just reminding you don't make any deals it's going to be okay because you're a righteous king all of the great prophets we're going to look at have some sort of complex relationship with a righteous king. And Hezekiah was a righteous king. In fact, the whole of the society had effected a reformation.
a religious reformation. They got rid of a lot of the idolatrous cults and so on that had been pervading Yehuda. I think they saw, I think the, the, the whole vanquishment of the northern kingdom really cast a shock upon what happened in Jerusalem, what happened in Yehuda, and they effected a religious reformation, a social justice reformation. They did all the right things because they knew that really they, they didn't want their fate to end up with the same as the northern kingdom. Another very important social facet of that is this, is that Jerusalem, until Hezekiahu, was quite small. How many of us have been to Jerusalem? I'm assuming that most of us. So, when we think of the Ir Atika, the old city, yeah, we think, oh, that's quite small. That must mean what he's talking about, but it's not what I'm talking about. It was much smaller. It was Ir David that exists now kind of to the, to the south of the main area, say where the Kotel is and just a bit south of all that. And it was expanded a little bit, Harabayat and a few other things, but it wasn't anywhere near what it became under Hezekiahu because of the massive influxes of people that were running over that managed to escape the Assyrian invasion of Israel. And in the course of just a very few short years, the whole population of Yerushalayim kind of grew five to like 500 percent basically five times what it was in a very short thing so that they had to build new suburbs when you go to the old city today and you go to say the armenian quarter yeah it looks very old to us but that would have been a flash new suburb in the times of Hezekiahu. and Hezekiahu therefore built a new wall and you can see that wall when your guide in the old city will say, oh, that's Hezekiahu's wall, that was part of the new walls they had to build, they're still today well within the old city, because the old city got expanded beyond that, you know, in later times and whatever. But that particular wall that Hezekiahu built to encapsulate the new expanded Jerusalem is still there, and to defend it against what he inevitably knew would be an Assyrian invasion. They also famously dug various other fortifications and engineering works in order to, you know, divert water and make sure that the city had all of its requirements because it was very clear that it was only a matter of time before they would have those tremendous challenges. And then, in around 702, 703, is when the really critical point happens. Because the Assyrians come. The Assyrians come. And sometimes when we're sitting here 2700 years later these events seem very distant to us and sometimes we don't even know about them but there's you, you you get a sense today when you look at it just how astonishing those events were the assyrians came with their unstoppable army and they came and they conquered yehuda and they destroyed everything as the Nevi'im said they would. The second largest city, they destroyed 46 habitations in Yehuda, 46 towns. The largest habitation in Yehuda outside of Yerushalayim is what? Anyone know? I mean, obviously they've got archaeological excavations there today. What was the largest city in Yehuda, outside, in Judah, outside of, uh, of Yerushalayim was Lachish. And the conquest of Lachish was so thorough and so brutal. Archaeologists have found tens of thousands of spears embedded in skulls and things like digging down like just, they, they just 
They sieged it, and when they took it, they massacred everyone. They, like, this was a massive conquest, so much so that even back in Nineveh, in the capital of Assyria, you can see reliefs on the walls which depict the Battle of Lachish. So had they taken Yerushalayim, it was going to be very, very severe. And it wasn't like there was this whole diaspora right around the world, you know, oh, we've got Jews in America, we've got Jews in Europe, we've got Jews elsewhere, you know. This was it. This was the end of the Jewish people. And with an enormous army of over 200,000, which was just phenomenal for the 8th century, Sancherib comes to the gates of Jerusalem and they start telling the people across the walls to the king, it's over. Do you know how many nations we have already conquered? And every nation we conquered tells us our God will save us and it doesn't happen. And so there's no point trying to defend this city. We're here. And obviously Chizkiyahu asks Yeshayahu what he should do. And Yeshayahu says, chillax. Nothing. That's kind of not really hitting home the message for Chizkiyahu. So he takes the letters that he's been given. He's been sent to him by the Assyrian army standing outside. They've sent these, what I basically the messages I just told you about. They send them in these letters and they say, give these to the king. He goes into the temple. He goes to the top. He goes to the roof. He stands there on the roof and he opens up the letters to heaven. And he says, God, what do I do? If you're going to act you kind of need to act now because this is it. And many, many nations that we only know via third-party sources were destroyed and crushed and eliminated from history by the Assyrians, including neighbors like Aram and so on. The Assyrians had crushed everyone. They were this massive wave. Now, that event when Chizkiyahu goes and shows the letters to God and says, what am I going to do? As if he didn't have enough on his plate, that was Erev Pesach. That was the day before Pesach. Now, there are different accounts. There's the account that Tanakh tells us about what happened. And then the Assyrians have their own story and the Egyptians have a picture of it. And everyone's got a different story and all historians have different theories about it. But they're all agreed on one thing. Is that the next day, when the first people peered over the wall to have a look at the Assyrian army, it was gone. It was gone. Now the Tanakh tells us that an angel came through and slew 185,000 of them in the night. First night of Pesach, the rabbis tell us that happened. Other historians and the Syrians say, oh, no, 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 he ended up paying some tribute and we bogged off. Other historians say there was a plague. Other historians say there was a rebellion in the army. Other historians tell you that he had to shift his massive army southwards in order to counter an attack from Egypt. Whatever the reasons are, they were gone. But look at the expansion of the Assyrian. Google it. Google the Neo-Assyrian Empire today 
and you will see this mass of where they were, except for one little pixel in the middle of it all, which is Yerushalayim, which they never conquered. Which they never conquered. Am ha'olchim ba'choshech, says Yeshayahu in chapter 9. Ra'u or gadol. The nation that had been walking in darkness have seen a great light. This was a phenomenal miracle. However you want to explain it, the end was nigh and bang, that happened. So that then also obviously aided the tremendous reformation that Yeshayahu, that helped Chizkiyahu make in the society the effect that he had. Now, in line with that, and also the historical circumstances of all that are, you'll find them also, uh, not just in the book of Kings, but you'll find them repeated basically in the same way in the book of Yeshayahu itself between chapters 33 and 39 about how all of those events happen. Throughout the chapters, which are the 20s, Yeshayahu is really giving prophecies to other nations because the prophets saw themselves not just as prophets to the people of Israel, but also prophets to other nations as well. And calling upon them to behave with justice, both internally and externally, and to behave with righteousness. Because the whole calling of the people of Israel is to be that light to the nations. I want to talk for a little bit about, obviously, <laughs> we hadn't finished entirely with Hezekiahu's relationship with Yeshayahu. Hezekiahu went on, you know, uh, after a while Hezekiahu became very ill. Uh, the rabbis tell us, the Tanakh doesn't tell us, but the rabbis tell us that the reason he became ill is because he didn't have any children. The reason he didn't have any children was because he said, this is not in Tanakh, this is the rabbinic midrash on it, is because he said that I've foreseen that if I have children they'll turn out to be wicked, so I thought better not to bring them into the world, and that was considered punishable by death to have that speculation about one's kids. So he's mortally ill and terminally ill and the Tanakh narrative tells us that the prophet Yeshayahu goes to visit him and Yeshayahu says to Yeshayahu well you know what are we talking and he goes three days and Yeshayahu turns to the wall and utters this phenomenal prayer that you can read in the book of Yeshayahu read in Sefer Malachim he offers this prayer that is so heart-rending about what Yeshayahu wants to achieve and what he wants to do and how he wants to walk before God that before Yeshayahu, the prophet, is even out of the building, he gets another call on the mobile from God and says, okay, go back and tell him he's got another 15 years. So he goes back and he tells Hezekiah that he has another 15 years. Coming back now to Midrash, we're told that Yeshayahu then organized for Hezekiah to marry his own daughter, Yeshayahu's own daughter, and he goes, well, listen, you're a righteous king, I'm kind of like the prophet Isaiah, so if you have a child with my daughter, it's good chance it's going to be okay. But as it happened, it wasn't because Hezekiahu's son turned out to be the last king that reigned in the career of Yeshayahu. And that was one of the worst and most awful kings that the whole of the kingdom of Judah had ever seen. And that, of course, was, yes, Menashe. Very good, Sharon. Menashe. Menashe was awful. But, and Menashe, we're told by Midrash, is the one that actually killed the prophet Isaiah, effectively meaning that he would have killed his own grandfather. Uh, so Yeshayahu was martyred under the kingdom of Menashe. There's no way that Menashe was going to be able to tolerate someone who was, I mean, he killed all the prophets, he, killed, he filled Jerusalem with blood, 
killing any opposition. So there's no way that he was going to be able to tolerate someone of the, of the caliber of the prophet Yeshayahu running around, even if it was his own grandfather. But I want to deal with some of the major themes just briefly at the end. I just, we're going to close in a minute, but I just want to talk for a sec about uh, some of the major themes in the latter part of the book, many of which are familiar to you. Those of you who go to shul on a regular basis would recognize many of the chapters contained in 40 to 66 as haftarot that you are familiar with, starting right from the beginning of chapter 40, the famous nachamu, nachamu ami. A lot of that has led people, therefore, to assume that perhaps the 40 to 66 chapters, the, the chapters that go from 40 to 66 don't worry about chapters, by the way. The chapters are not ours. We didn't make up the chapters. They were made in the Middle Ages by some priest dudes, Stephen Langton or whatever, but they're very useful and we've adopted them. But the, that really it's talking about uh, a period here, and which is the post-exilic period already when they're coming back from Babylon, that maybe a lot of that refers to it. And therefore that has obviously led some scholars to think, ah, oh, well, if it's talking about that, then maybe it was written then. Others have come along and say, no, 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 it still belongs here. He may be talking about there, but he is a, a prophet, so it's not a problem. Every major theme that is part of this radical transformation of the concept of God that is happening in the prophetic project is found in the book of Isaiah in its most pristine and sublime form. But fundamentally, it's like this. Your concept of justice and social justice, whatever you think it is, is very linked with your religion. It's linked with your concept of God. There is a deep relationship between idolatry and social injustice because both represent the pursuit of power. Only the God of the universe, who is the God of Israel, is the true force in the world that demands ethical and moral relationships from people and justice and righteousness. In order to do that, you need to be a universal nation and you need to have that, you need to aspire to that universal code of ethics that is recognized by all nations in terms of what justice is. You'll find that you have the Torah, so you have the ability to do that. And you have a relationship with a God who represents that. Ah, but you fall short of those standards. And you say, well, how can I fix that? And this is really where the prophets introduce their most powerful concept. All other concepts that we see in the prophets are adjuncts of this one. And all the great sublime pictures emerge from this concept that the prophets of Israel, again and again and again as their essential message, have introduced. It is a, not an idea that was really known theologically in the world before here, but it forms the cornerstone of our entire relationship with God from here onwards. And it is the concept of Teshuvah. And Teshuvah means Teshuvah. It can't be translated. Some people want to call it repentance, but that's a very, very weak approximation and doesn't even really give the picture. Teshuvah means Teshuvah because it also means response. It means answer. It means return. It does mean repentance. But what it really means is an inner transformation. I can become 
a righteous person immediately. And when I do genuinely effect that inner transformation, which starts with the question, why am I an asshole? That's the real initial question of Teshuvah. And when you effect that transformation and decide to live as a righteous, honest person, then you transform the world around you. you society transforms. When a society transforms itself on that level, then they affect all nations around them. And what does that transformation look like? It looks like the messianic period, the messianic age that will be ushered in by a transformation that happens in the world. The Jewish people, says Yeshayahu, and say all of the Nevi'im, but especially next week we'll see with Yirmiyahu, cannot look to all other circumstances and events and people and go, oh, woe is us, woe is us, and keep wallowing in victimology. At some point you have to realize that your very geopolitical picture is a reflection of how you're running your society and who you are. And that applies to every age. And I know that's a difficult message. It's a difficult message for our generation because we have the right to turn around and say, oh, what do you want from us? We came out of the Holocaust. Surely we're allowed to be victims. But no, says Yeshayahu, that reality or not, you must effect an inner transformation that can turn the Jewish people into the light to the nations it's meant to be. And especially if you have the zechut, the right, the merit and the responsibility of having sovereignty in the land of Israel, as we will see next week with Yirmiyahu, that brings with it responsibilities on a whole other level. But, but, but what a vision. What a vision of what the world will be like. And Yeshayahu tells you, don't listen to people who tell you that you are naive when you talk about world peace. Don't listen to people who scoff at you and say, ah, he's just a yeah, naive world peace. It is possible. If it's not possible, then what are we doing? What is the point? It is possible, it is achievable, but it doesn't start with him or with her or with them. It starts with you. It starts with the inner transformation that you're going to make in yourself, in your family, in your community, in your society, in your nation and in the world. Oh, it's a big job. Yeah, but it starts with you. And it's true, the prophets tell you, transform yourself and the world will be transformed. So that's the key messages that emerge from Yeshayahu. When you read all the incredible visions, I mean, we can talk all about them. You know, the, the famous things, you know, that nations shall not lift weapon against nation. They won't learn war anymore. There won't be any more war. And, you know, we can go, oh, there won't be war. But we've seen in the last 500 years of history that certain things that were assumed became anachronistic, like slavery, like universal suffrage. These things became things in the past. There's no reason why we can't achieve that world where, war, where nations do not go to war anymore. The book of Yeshayahu, I'm urging you not to just 
listen to me talk about it and put it in historical context. But now that we have that historical context, these are the kings that, that Yeshayahu is dealing with, particularly his relationship with, with Hezkiyahu. And all of that is effectively, you'll find in the, in, in the first kind of section of the book, 1 to 39. But particularly if you look at chapters 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, you'll see the whole story with Hezkiyahu. The first five chapters are a microcosm. So if you can't read the whole book, just read the first five chapters of Yeshayahu. Read them in English if you can't read them in Hebrew. If you can read both, then look at both and kind of realize how brilliant and amazing the language is. And next time you look at a Haftarah, so that whole six months that we're going to look at from Pesach right through to Rosh Hashanah is just filled with Haftarot taken from Yeshayahu, especially once we get past Tisha B'Av and we're going to be looking at all the amazing seven Haftarot of comfort. Because on the one hand, Yeshayahu is kind of this boom, 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 castigating prophet, but his tremendous vision is one of humongous comfort and just sublime poetry when he tells you what your destiny as a Jewish person is, what, your, what, you, what project can you contribute to, it is a project that is fundamentally universal. After Yeshayahu, no longer is God just, you know, a powerful God, the most powerful God. He is the only God. Apart from me, there is no God. God is God. And you recognize God because anything that works towards righteousness and justice and freedom is God. And that is the key to the book of Yeshayahu. Are there any questions on that? According to the, the rabbis, Yeshayahu was martyred because at the very beginning of his career, when he had that big vision, he said, you know, I shouldn't be seeing this because I'm kind of an ordinary person, Ani Arel Sfatayim, I am kind of, you know, unclean of lips, and I live amongst an unclean people. And God said to him, well, you can speak for yourself, but you can't speak for the people around them, even though we know they're all sinners. You have to be very careful what you say when you take on a responsibility on behalf of the Jewish people, what you say about the Jewish people. And it's basically because of that later on that Yeshayahu suffered in the hands of King Menashe, according to the rabbis. No, this is not, this is not from the book itself. Oh. Since no one's moving and no one's asking any questions, I'll just say one more thing. All right? Because this is interesting. There is perhaps no book that has been more misinterpreted than the book of Yeshayahu and the book of Isaiah. And there have been no greater misinterpreters of the book than the proponents of another big religion that we're all aware about. And so I just want to talk about that for one second because... One of the things that Christians do when they talk about the book of Isaiah, and I don't know whether people in this day and age still get missionaries knocking on the door or anything like that, but what they, what they often do is they talk about certain sections from Isaiah as being indicative of you-know-who and saying they must be talking about him. There is a set of poems that are spread throughout these chapters, this second part of the book of Isaiah, that are called the servant songs. And so, and you know, they talk about the servant of God and what the servant of God is going to go through. And, when, and, and Christians are very fond of saying, oh, Isaiah 53, have a look at Isaiah 53. If you ask any Christian, any respectable Christian evangelist, what is the most, most prominent T-shirt slogan verses of the Bible that can prove to the Jews that, Isaiah is talking, that the Bible is talking about Jesus? They'll say Isaiah 53. And the issue is, 
is that it would appear that none of them have looked at Isaiah 52, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 49, 48, all of the servant songs, it's very, very clear who the servant is. Avdi Yisrael, the people of Israel are the servant. This point was very, very eloquently made by the Ramban in the famous disputation of Barcelona in the 13th century when he scandalized everybody by saying that the Jewish people are Jesus. Manan. And so anytime someone tries to tell you that, tell them, like, just go back to chapter 42, go back to chapter 44, go back to the beginning of that whole section, and it tells you very clearly who the servant is. That's number one. Uh, there's also some very famous, like for example, one of the famous things that they do with the book of Isaiah, as you know, when they talk about, and it's even in the New Testament, it's completely ridiculous mistranslation and out of context, bizarre thing. But they tell you that Isaiah 7.14 is uh, the virgin birth, right? There's the prediction of the virgin birth. See, I don't know how many of them ever actually go to 7.14 and actually read 7.13 and 7.12 and 7.11 and actually read the seventh chapter of Isaiah because if you do you will see that what is happening in chapter 7 is a conversation between the prophet Yeshayahu and Ahaz about the two kings that are about to invade and Yeshayahu says I'll give you a sign because the wife's pregnant and when she gives birth Right? She's going to give birth to a boy, and before that boy even knows how to, you know, the difference between right and wrong, or he's only, you know, eat anything other than cream, these, boy, these guys here will be vanquished. So it's kind of like a sign. And somehow, somehow, the New Testament writers took that verse, Hinei ha'alma harav yoledet ben, using the word alma, which doesn't mean virgin, means young woman, but they said, oh, that means virgin. How on earth it's going to help Ahaz to be told a sign by Isaiah about an event that's going to happen in 700 years' time on a completely different and irrelevant plane is very, very difficult for us to understand. But it's a good example of how many of the writers of the church took verses at random and didn't study the context. So if we study context, we kind of get to fix that up for the Jewish people. Unfortunately, the world... Many people in the world know Tanakh better than the Jewish people themselves. We're not reading it enough. The most important thing is to look at a prophet and say, when did he live? What was his context? Because without that, we can't really assess his contribution. All right, I'm going to finish off on that now. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.